This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Caleb F. and Joanna, Levi, Stephen, Sam M., and Tim. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. First off, we have a couple of serious questions, and in this episode, we're doing something a little bit fun. Our first question was actually asked by two different people, but it's the same question. Caleb F. and Joanna both asked, what does Selah mean? Well, the word Selah occurs 74 times in the Psalms, and also three times in the book of Habakkuk. So, it's natural to wonder what it means. We often see it in Psalm readings, oftentimes in italics off to the far right-hand side. You might see this word at the end of a stanza or the end of a verse, and naturally you wonder, what does it mean? Well, we don't actually know what the word Selah means, and we haven't known what it means for a very, very long time. Even the ancient commentators were not sure what this word meant. Before the days of Jesus, when the Hebrew Bible was being translated into Greek, they could only speculate about the meaning of the word because its true meaning had been lost over time. The reason for this is actually pretty simple. The music that the Psalms had been sung to had been lost, and Selah seems to have been some kind of musical notation. In the same way that the descriptions at the beginning of some of the Psalms will mention little details about how they're meant to be performed. They might say who wrote them, who they were written for, even what tune that they should be sung to. Well, Selah seems to be a similar kind of term. It's an indicator of some kind of action that's meant to take place in the music. We just don't know what exactly that action was. Some scholars believe that Selah is a cue for a crash of cymbals or some other kind of dramatic flourish. Others think that it signals a kind of musical interlude where the singers would pause and the musicians would be free to play for a while, maybe improvising some music. I've even seen some people suggest that Selah was a signal for a key change. So whenever you saw that instruction, you would jump up an octave and sing higher. Personally, I think the best way to think about Selah is to understand it as a pause and to leave a little bit of silence before resuming the reading. So when I'm reading a psalm out loud, I don't say the word Selah out loud, but I will pause for a moment at that point before I pick up with the next line. That's how I do it. Uh, You can do it differently because, as I say, we're not sure exactly what we're meant to do, but we do know it's something to do with the musical notations. Our next question comes from Levi, who asks, In heaven, will we worship Jesus or God the Father, or both? Well, Levi, you're on the right track here. The answer is certainly both. 
in the book of Revelation, where we find scenes of future worship, worship services that are going to take place in times to come, there are songs in that worship which are directed to the Father, and there are songs which are directed to the Son. But if you think about it, we don't have to wait until heaven or until the future and Jesus' second coming for any of this, because we already worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can see this in our worship services. At the beginning, I always say grace and peace to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's a greeting, a welcome into the presence of God. After we confess our sins and receive an assurance of pardon from God's word, we answer him by worshiping, giving glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even at the end of our services, when we sing the doxology, remember how the doxology ends, that we praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So we are worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, whenever we worship God, we always worship the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do that now, and we will do it when Jesus comes again. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this episode from Stephen. So let's give Stephen a round of applause. Here's Stephen's question. How much does God love us? Stephen, that is a big question. And you know what makes that a big question? It's that it takes such a big answer. In fact, in a sense, this question is impossible to answer because no one can comprehend just how much God loves us. And to be honest with you, that's a problem with measuring love in general. For example, if you ask your mom, how much do you love me? She might hold out her hands as wide as she can and say this much, or even this much times infinity, because the reality is you can't measure it. So you have to come up with some kind of comparison or some kind of analogy to try and describe what the size of your love is like. By the way, when something is too big to measure, you can be pretty sure that it's got to be huge. I mean, we can measure the distance between the earth and the sun, but we can't measure the amount of God's love. Now, sometimes, as I said, when you can't get a direct measurement for something, you can at least come up with a good comparison or an analogy. That's what you're doing when you're holding your hands as far apart as you can and saying, I love you this much. That's not literally how much your mother loves you or you love her, but it's a comparison. It shows how big the amount must be, as far as my two hands can possibly be, or as far as, well, let, let's take an example from the Bible, because the Bible does something exactly like this when it talks about how much God loves us. If you look in Psalm 103, you'll find these words, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. In other words, God loves us so much, it's like the distance between the earth and the heavens above. So we are comparing God's love to the distance between earth and heaven. And when you ask yourself, well, how far is that exactly? We don't know. But it's a lot. 
It's an impossible amount to imagine. And when you think about how much distance there is between heaven and earth, the scale is immense. And that's how much God loves us, the psalmist says. His love for us is immense in the same way. And Psalm 103 does another thing that we often do when we cannot define something with absolute precision. It uses a special word. And we're always coming up with special words for things that we have a hard time defining. Supposedly, the Eskimos have something like 30 words for snow because they really care about snow a lot and and probably because they see a lot of different kinds of it and recognize differences that would be invisible to us because we don't pay that close attention. So we just lump them all together. Well, Psalm 103 does something like this. It uses a special word for God's love because it's much greater than the kind of love that we're used to. The word in Hebrew is hesed, which we translate in English as steadfast love. Steadfast means sure. It means secure and faithful. God's love is a certain, secure, and always faithful love. It's a love that doesn't go away, that never abandons you. It's a love that keeps its promises to you even when you fail to keep your promises. Now, in the New Testament, we find another comparison to understand the love of God. We find this in the third chapter of John's Gospel, where John writes that God loves us so much that he sent his Son to die for us and to redeem us. Now, if you think about that, just ask yourself, how much would you have to love someone to make a sacrifice like that? It's really hard to answer that question, but that's what God's love is like. That's how great it is. It's as great as the love it would take to sacrifice your only begotten son for the one that you love. Well, the best things in life, goodness, truth, beauty, they're so wonderful that sometimes the only way we can talk about them is through comparisons like this. They're beyond words, in other words. They're beyond understanding. And that's what God's love is like. And that's about as close as we can get to answering the question, how much does God love us? But you know what? Like a lot of questions that we can only answer through comparisons, this is a big question that's really worth contemplating and reflecting on. Because as much, as big as you think the love of God is, it's bigger. It's more than that. And now before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. This week we have fun questions from Sam M. and from Tim. First, Sam wants to know, are the candles up front real? They never seem to shorten. Well, Sam is talking here about the candles at the front of the sanctuary, the candles on the communion table. And I can testify firsthand that the candles on the communion table are real because I light them every week. And sometimes it is a real struggle because I have to reach up over the edge of the glass tube that the candles are in that protects them from from the wind blowing them out. And I have to reach down there and stick the lighter down deep enough to find the wick. Now, 
I understand they probably don't look like they're getting shorter and shorter every week because when they melt, they tend to melt in the middle and the sides are left pretty high. So when you're looking at them, they probably look more or less the same. And of course, when they do start to burn down, we replace them. However, we're beginning the season of Advent right now, and if you pay close attention to the Advent candles, you'll notice that they really do stay the same height week after week, and yet they are also real candles. Well, the trick is the candles are inside a special tube that this it's the same color as the candle, so there's, there's white and there's pink and there's purple, but the real candle is in that tube and there's a spring underneath it so that as the candle melts and gets shorter, the candle's pushed upward by the spring and it always appears to be the same height. So the next time you're at church, you might want to go forward and look at the Advent candles and see if you can figure out how it's done. Just be sure not to touch them, especially when they're lit. Our last question comes from Tim, and he asks, who is your favorite superhero? Tim, I have a vague recollection of having talked about my favorite superhero before, but the older I get, the harder it is to remember what I've already said. So I'm going to go ahead and answer this one. Uh, The answer naturally has to be Spider-Man. Because I used to watch the old Spider-Man cartoon as a kid, and I can still remember the song to this day. You might remember I actually sang a verse from the Spider-Man song in a sermon not too long ago, but I'm not going to repeat it now. Well, maybe I'll just remind you of the way that it ends. Uh, the, the very final words of the song are, Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Okay, that's enough. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So remember, keep asking the big questions.